Now, now we can try to change our behavior with works. Now, that's not God's grace at work. And he's at work in changing his children's behavior, those who, who have trusted Christ as their Savior and have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And that Holy Spirit is at work within us. Now, I, I saw a movie yesterday. I won't give away what movie it was, but it's really about a man coming to grips with all of the, his life and his relationship with his father and and. And a, a pivotal statement was made in which I caught as, you know, this is what this movie is about. And it was, we've all we've got. Or, or I'm sorry, we're all we've got. We are all we've got. In other words, don't look anywhere else. For the changes that need to happen, don't look anywhere else. Nobody's coming to help. Nobody's going to save us. And it was a pivotal moment, uh, a pivotal truth for that character, but I, I propose it's not truth. In many ways, it's a lie. In many ways, the, what, what uh, developed as the self-help movement of the 1990s, which has really become the self-help establishment, it was based on this idea that you, have all, you are all you've got and you need to change yourself and you can. You know, we all have things that need to change. Tim Ross jokes that if, if, if you, know, you know it's time to, to change your life when you're, you're throwing away a full McDonald's bag as you're walking into McDonald's. Something needs to change there. Speaking of McDonald's, the the Dalai Lama uh, went there to get a Happy Meal. What else is the Dalai Lama going to order from McDonald's? And and Floyd, who's there at the cashier, our friend Floyd, and and, uh, Dalai Lama gives him a 20. Floyd takes the 20, says, all right, it'll be up in a moment. Enjoy your day. Dalai Lama looks at him and says, where's my change? Floyd says, oh, don't you realize change comes from within? Have a nice day. Our verses here help us to see where does change come from? Where does real change come from? How do we change? Why do we change? Also, by whose standard should we change? Whose standard are we trying to measure up to anyways? So we read here in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. We're looking through verse 21 here this morning. Where we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God and raised him from the dead and gave him glory. I'm sorry, who he's for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I want you to see this morning that the, the first step in allowing God to change your behavior is to see that we are, you are to let God rule in your every moment. I mean, that's a standard that is set here, folks. That we are really called to let God rule in our every moment. That's what he deserves from those who believe in him and trust in Christ and those who don't. We, we, we've looked at these verses uh, last week as well. You might be sitting there going, ah, oh, these sound familiar. And we looked at them as a transition out of, uh, from, from the gospel truths that a person is saved by into how it should affect their life. And now we, we look at them in, in conjunction with the, the whole argument here. And if you remember, the two main verbs of these verses here in this section are that you are to set your hope fully on Christ's return having prepared your mind for serving him. And secondly, you're to be holy in all of your conduct, living set apart. And this comes hand in hand with walking in that hope of his return. This is what it looks like or what it means to let him rule in every moment. And these walk hand in hand together, just looking forward and, and, and seeking to walk by his standard. As we see in 1 John 3, verse 3, And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We're not to make ourselves comfortable here because he is about to change everything. Do you realize that? When Christ returns, he's about to change everything. And our hope is to be in the grace that will be brought when he appears. All the answers to the deepest longings of your life are going to be brought by his grace. Think of a, a couple as when they get engaged, all right? And, and, and uh, so, so he puts a ring on it. And how does this engaged bride-to-be live before her wedding? Does she say, oh, it's, you know, it's going to happen at some point. What's, what's the matter of making a fuss? What do I really need to plan? Right? No, that's not how she thinks at all. I mean, she starts planning from that very moment. Folks, if you have received Christ as your Savior, He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit that the Scripture talks about as a guarantee of our coming inheritance actually uses the same term as an engagement ring, that He is returning. We're told our groom is coming. And just like that bride-to-be starts to prepare herself And making plans, we are called to be the same for our coming Christ. To be living for that moment. And this call to put our hope in Christ's return is is prepping us 
for the moral commands that we are to live within. We're told as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Or as the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, obedience is a conscious act of the will. Christians in conflict, as those who that Peter was writing to, they were Christians in conflict. Christians in conflict need a tough-minded holiness that is ready for action. More and more we start to realize that we in America are becoming Christians in conflict. And we need a tough-minded holiness ready for action. To be holy means to be set apart. Just as God is set apart from everything with everything that he does. Everything that he is. Think if you will, if, if, if this room was full of pianos and it was your job to tune them, all right? You wouldn't tune the first piano and then tune the next one off of that piano and then tune the next one off of that piano. By the time you got to the end of the room, the first piano and the last piano would sound completely different. No? A person that's tuning the piano, he pulls out a tuning fork. Because every time that tuning fork is struck, it's the same tone. Consistent. Guys, our world is full of competing voices about what's right and what's wrong and what you should base right and wrong upon. You know, the statements are made, well, what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me. What's, what's wrong for that person isn't necessarily wrong for you. What we're being told here in this passage is that our standard is to be God's holiness because he is holy. It's not relative morality. It's that our morality should always be relative to who God is and his standard of holiness. Or as Wayne Grudem says, imitation of God's moral character is the ultimate basis for ethics. The final reason why some things are right and others wrong is why there are moral absolutes in this universe, is that God delights in things that reflect his moral character and thus reflect his excellence. And he hates what is contrary to his character. Therefore, we are to imitate him and thereby glorify him, end quote. See, Christ has, is to become our new culture. He, God's holiness is to establish our ethics. And we are no longer to define what is right and wrong by our cultural standard. That's the former ignorance that Peter talks about that these people were saved out of. That anybody who knows Christ as their Savior was saved out of. That God's standard of holiness is to be our standard of right and wrong. We are to be holy as God is holy. God's standards are are, are what our nation was found on, or what our laws were based on. And if the statement, be holy as God is holy, if we find that intimidating, it's only evidence that, that, that we need to be we need a different standard than what Peter later calls the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers. 
We need to recalibrate our behavior to God's standard of holiness. And that takes a whole lot of moment-by-moment adjustment of our thoughts, adjustment of our rationalizations. But God is worthy of it. My sister loves hard puzzles. I mean, I was there when she was giddy about getting a puzzle that had no edge pieces. I'm dead without the edge pieces. Go further, it had no picture on the box top to go by. I think it was just a pile of popcorn, which was the picture. So that'll drive even more nuts. God has no intention of driving us nuts. Guys, he's given us edge pieces. Those are his commands. God's commands set the border around our behavior. He's given us the box top. He's given us the picture. It's his holiness. It's his holy standard. That's what we are to look toward. Especially when the world is saying, eh, what's right for you isn't necessarily right for me or wrong for me. At Jesus' return, he's going to put all the remaining pieces in place. Is his work going to fit your present efforts? Only if you're working by God's standard, by his box top, if you will. How much of the investment of your life is going to have to be redone because you've been putting all the pieces together as you think they should be? Watch out, folks. That's what the world is encouraging you to do, and it's from the devil. Do you see how it undermines God's glory? It remakes his creation into something that no longer bears his image. Moving forward, let, let's say you're, you're, you're staying in a hotel. And you're at a hotel in a, in a city where you have an old friend there. And you're looking forward to catching up with your old friend. So, so you, you contact him. You're like, hey, come over to my hotel. We'll hang out. We'll catch up a little bit. And he walks in the front doors and you meet him and he's like, Hey, nice place. You got quite a home. What are you talking about? This isn't my home. This is a hotel. I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when somebody's living in a hotel, something's wrong, okay? Because you're only staying there temporarily. And in the same sense, we are only staying on earth in this time frame as visitors or as Peter calls the readers and calls us exiles. We're living away from our real home. And during this time, we must live with God's accounting in mind. These are some uncomfortable verses here, folks, where he says, if you, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each man's deeds. By what standard? By his holy standard. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's his word for our living on this earth. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. 
Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And when he says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, this is like a long phrase of saying, if you're truly a Christian. If you call on him as father, and all the grace that comes with that. But it's also pointing out how impartial God is based on his holiness. It's pointing out how blessed we are to be forgiven. I don't know about you, but I don't measure up to God's standard of holiness. That doesn't mean I don't seek to live by it, though. It makes me thankful for Jesus' righteousness that's given to me. But see here, he knows you, and he keeps accounts. This is why we're called to conduct ourselves with fear, and we'll, and we'll get to that. But, but it's hard telling uh, how this, 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 uh, if this is uh, an account referring to the Lord's discipline, or if it's his judgment of believers when he returns. Both are real. Hebrews 12 talks about the discipline that God has for his children because he loves them. Where it says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Or it could be talking about the judgment seat of Christ. It could be talking about both. As 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what was done in the body, whether good or evil. And you could, if you pick up one of these sheets, you can find some other passages having to do with these principles of God's discipline and and the judgment seat of Christ. But both should give us a healthy fear of the Lord. And there's a total difference between having a healthy fear and being afraid. Especially being afraid of God. One writer says, Fear of God is not inconsistent with loving Him or knowing that He loves us. If it were... We would have to say that Old Testament believers who feared God could not also have loved him, which is clearly false. Think of of David and his love for the Lord, but yet his fear for him, fear of him. And he continues, or that God did not love them, which is also clearly false. Rather, fear of displeasing our Father is the other side of loving him. Fear of displeasing our Father is the other side of loving Him. It's the flip side of the coin, if you will. I mean, think about it. You, you we have probably all experienced this. Um, most of you moms, you've probably uh, said this. You know, in a situation where children are disobeying and that statement gets made, wait until your father gets home, right? 
And, and that's a situation of disobedience. But there's also the situation of expected obedience. I mean, when maybe a dad is going away or, or for a trip or, or maybe there's just the understanding of when dad comes home, these are the things that should be done. And the question might be asked, did you do what you were told to do? Now, there's a healthy fear there, not a f- being afraid. If there's a terror at that moment, at that question, something's wrong in the relationship. But God didn't give us a relationship with him where something would be wrong of being afraid of him because of his grace. I love this quote. God gives us many gifts and privileges as we grow in the Christian life. But he will never give us the privilege to disobey and sin. Years of obedience cannot purchase an hour of disobedience. If one of his children disobeys, God must discipline. But when his children obeys and serves him in love, he notes that that and prepares the proper reward. But God's grace can be the greater motivator as you recognize that he paid the highest price for you. All of this comes knowing that you were ransomed. If you know Christ as your Savior, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Now those that, that, that don't value the blood of Christ might sit and go, oh, wait, silver and gold, you don't want that? You getting rid of it? I'll take it. We're, we're to realize that the precious blood of Christ is so much more valuable than any of that stuff that's going to perish. We're told we're ransomed. That means to purchase someone's freedom by paying a ransom price. To set free. The slaves of that day could be freed with the payment of money. But here's the deal. No amount of money can set a lost person free from sin and its penalty of death. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can be that ransom payment. This frees us from hell when we receive it. But it also frees us from hell on earth futility, vanity, effort upon effort arriving at nothing. That's what it's referring to, the futile ways that we inherit from our forefathers. You're described as ransomed from your futile ways, your nothingness. Let me ask you, did you know that God's in the, in the tree-changing business? I'm not saying tree-trimming business. He's in the tree changing business. He transforms family trees. He's always been doing it. You know, the children of Israel, when they were set free from Egypt, they came out of a completely pagan, idolatrous culture that they had lived in for the last 400 years. And God needed to make something clear. He didn't put up with idol worship. This is what he says, you shall not bow down to them. In Exodus 20, this is, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, and I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the fathers 
I'm sorry, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The the ESV study Bible says the sins of parents and grandparents are often repeated in later generations. Christ's sacrifice breaks the inevitability and power of generational sin. God's in the tree changing business. He changes family trees. As Wayne Gruden also says, the hereditary chain of sin is broken by Christ. We weren't set free by a certain amount being paid. We were ransomed by a certain person being sacrificed. Romans 6.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that work together? Well, Jesus took the death that we deserved as the wage for our sin so that God could offer Jesus' eternal life to us by simply recognizing and confessing, admitting, receiving. That's what you did for me. And I couldn't do it for myself. And I'll take it, Lord. I'll take it for my own. Imagine, if you will, okay, a very, very wealthy, wealthy man. And his daughter is kidnapped. And there's no help coming from anybody else. And and the people that kidnap his daughter know exactly what his net worth is. And there's kind of a conversation of, we know what you're worth. We know what you have in stocks. We know what you have in properties. We know what you have in cash. Cash it out and hand it over. And so out of love for his daughter, that's what he does. He cashes out everything. And I don't know how big of a bag you'd have to put all that in, okay? But he shows up at the meeting spot and he sets that down and he backs off. And the kidnapper walks up with his daughter, hands his daughter over and picks up the bag. And having sacrificed everything, the father's like, come here. She comes walking up and she's like, whatever. And as they're walking off, she looks back at the kidnapper and she's like, hey, call me sometime. We'll hang out. That's the picture that's being painted here with what God had to pay. The highest price he could ever pay to ransom you. And that's supposed to be a motivating idea for us because when we look at temptation and we think of it like it's no big deal, we're looking at God's enemy and saying, hey, call me sometime. We'll hang out. It's to be a motivation for us to look at that standard of God's holiness and say, God, this is what you bought for me. You didn't just save me from the penalty of eternal hell. You saved me from hell on earth. And living by my standard ain't doing it. Because I just end up in the same spot over and over and over again. Whereas the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The highest cost of salvation, the beloved son's precious blood 
calls for believers to live in reverent fear before God. Holy living is motivated by a God-fearing faith which does not take lightly the new life purchased at so great a cost. What does this look like as we are living a new life? Because we still sin. We still find ourselves in the back in the same spot. It looks like confession. And I understand, you might know, confession means to agree with God. It means first to agree, yes, God, I did that. I can't hide it from you. And I agree with you, it's wrong. But folks, it's also to agree with the gospel. To say, but I know that you have paid for my sin. That you have given me your righteousness. That I don't walk in my sin before you. I walk in your righteousness. And I know that you have purchased for me new life. And that's what I should walk in. So God, remind me of these truths. Remind me of my relationship with you. Remind me of what you paid for, for me. And I agree with it. That's what confession looks like. Because you can, you know, the, when the military has a stronghold or a, or, or a barrier that they need to get past, they're going to call in the airstrikes beforehand. You can call in the prayer strikes. Okay? You can pray about temptation before you run into it. Can I just share with you, and this is literally word for word off of my prayer list, that I try to pray through on a morning-by-morning basis, and I actually have it on the back of this study sheet as well. But it goes like this, Lord, by your grace, help me to not throw away intimacy with you and with others on a whim. Help me to understand the gravity of each moment of temptation. Give me your perspective on temptation. Remind me that sin offends you and causes and caused the sacrifice of your son. Remind me that my spiritual growth, my spirit, I'm sorry, my spiritual strength grows as I lean on your mighty power and provision. And that sin destroys my spiritual power, my ability to walk by the Spirit and fruits of the Spirit. Remind me that joy comes through loving and serving others and you, not from serving myself. And it's very selfish and unloving to be concerned only with my fleshly needs. Remind me that daily help, renewal, and transformation are available at your throne. And sinful desires, when they creep up, they should signal the need for my renewal and a transformed heart. Help me to remember that time and truth walk hand in hand. In other words, given enough time, the truth will always reveal itself. I cannot hide my sin. That's my preemptive prayer strikes against temptation. 
I encourage you to pray something similar to that. You know, there's three truths that I find uh, from, from this passage that upset American Christians, okay? One is the idea that believers should have a healthy fear of God. Second one is the idea that Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Thirdly, it's the idea of God's sovereign plan was to save a person before they could do anything to earn it. How fun is it that this is the third one is where our passage goes next, right? It's, we're dealing with those big three this morning. And I challenge you from these verses to put your total trust in God's big story. Put your total trust in God's big story for you. Speaking of Christ, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. In other words, coming in the flesh in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Speaking of God's foreknowledge here, it's God's plan to sacrifice his son. That plan was made before the foundation of the universe was, was even excuse me, was even laid. The picture that, that comes to my mind here is God the Father and God the Son in, in relationship with each other from eternity past. And the Holy Spirit's in there too. But making plans. And just like two people holding hands in a two-person circle might open up and welcome another person into that. That they're planning how it is that they can welcome a child of God, into relationship with them based on their glorious, redeeming grace. Based on them showing a greater act of grace that could ever be shown in this world. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him on his rightful throne. Jesus is now the conduit through whom you are believers in God if you've trusted him as your Savior. And you join God's plan when you believe, putting your faith and your hope in God through Christ. And I am wise to realize that God sees me as his child because I trust in Christ and Christ alone, not for any other reason. just as it's unwise to ignore the value of the precious blood of Christ. It is stupidity to treat the eternal work of God like it's simply a theological truth that we debate. Honestly, I, I hear more people, uh, see people take a stronger stand for the free will of man than they do for the glory of God in man's salvation. Oh, that people would be more careful and thought a little bit more before they said things like, I don't like the idea of God choosing his children. It just doesn't sit with me well. God likes it. He talks about it a lot. It's a big deal to him. He takes pride in it. And yeah, it doesn't give us something to take pride in. 
like maybe working for it or looking like we deserve it. That sort of belief would do. The purpose of how God has done what he has done and how he did it, planning before the foundation of the world, saving us not because of anything that we have done. The purpose of it all is in that last phrase, so that your faith and hope are in God. Not in yourself. Not in some book that's going to tell you how to change. Not in self-help. If you're looking for something in this passage to make you feel better about you, or your ability to self-help, there's not a lot here. But what we should be comforted by is where we're going. What we should have confidence in is is that the fact that there is absolute truth, God's perfect holiness. And thank goodness that we didn't have to measure up to his holiness to be saved. He planned our redemption in Christ before we could have ever had anything to do with it. And he's pretty proud of that. Let's bow our heads and praise him for it.